Okay. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Catherine Sainer, and I'm the head of the Science and Engineering Library, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to our lecture series entitled Synergy, Explorations in Science and Society. The purpose of this lecture series is to provide a platform for the UCSC and Santa Cruz community to learn about the exciting research in science and engineering currently in progress at UCSC. Of course, many people were involved in the production of today's event, and I'd like to take just a small moment to thank those folks. Um, they are Terry Haugen, Danielle Kane, Vince Novoa, Molly Ostrander, Barry Renema, Sandy Schmidt, Weiwei, and Christy Caldwell. So thank you to all of you for your hard work today. Um, we are very interested in hearing your thoughts and comments about this series, and of course, any suggestions you might have for future speakers. We have comment cards um, on the welcome table, um, which is just outside this room. Um, or you can speak to any member of the Science and Engineering Library, and we'd be happy to hear what you have to say about the series and anyone that you might want to recommend for uh, future. Um, speaking of the welcome table, if you haven't had a chance to stop by, um, please make sure you stop on the way out because you can pick up copies of articles um, by today's speaker, uh, who is, in fact, Dr. Mary Silver. Um, you can also pick up your very own Synergy Lecture Series post-it note, so be sure to stop by the welcome table. Um, we also, of course, have a sign-in sheet for those of you who wish to be notified by email about upcoming lectures. We created a web page for our lecture series, which lists upcoming speakers and, of course, past speakers as well. And you'll notice from the um, literature on your chairs that we do podcasting now of those lectures. And now it is my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Mary Silver. <clears throat> Dr. Silver is an internationally recognized leader in biological oceanography. She received her PhD from the Scripps Institute of Oceanography in 1971 and came to UCSC in 1972 as an assistant professor and a founding member of UCSC's marine science program. Dr. Silver is perhaps best known for her research on marine snow, which led an academic senate committee to write, Silver's collective body of work on marine snow stands out as one of the great individual contributions in modern biological oceanography. Dr. Silver has been repeatedly recognized by the scientific community for her excellence in research and teaching. And I'll name just a few of those um, ways in which she was recognized. She was the first recipient of the Mary Sears Woman Pioneer in Oceanography Award in 2002 and was the first recipient of the Distinguished Women Scientist Award from Duke University. She was elected as a fellow of the California Academy of Sciences in 1997 and was a co-recipient of the Henry Bryant Bigelow Award in Oceanography from Woods Hole, which is actually only awarded every four years. She was named to give the 2001 Ricketts Memorial Lecture by the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary and was also selected as the least distinguished lecturer of the year, an award presented by the Department of Marine Sciences at the University of South Alabama. On campus, Dr. Silver was the recipient of the 1995-96 Outstanding Faculty Award. And last but not least, she received the Favorite Professor Award from the Alumni Association in 1991. A colleague of Dr. Silver remarked that she has combined pioneering contributions to biological oceanography with outstanding teaching, service to the university, and leadership and mentorship of other marine and ocean scientists. Today, she will discuss her research on the aquatic microbes that produce the toxins responsible for the deaths of local marine birds and mammals. She will review the phenomenon of red tides and will speculate on the possible links between marine toxins and culinary traditions in seafood-consuming communities. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Mary Silver. 
Okay, uh, can people hear me all right? All right, thank you. I'm very honored and glad to be giving this talk and a little nervous too. Um, uh, what I'm going to be talking about is work that I started um, based on an event that happened in 1991. And I have for a number of years worked on the phenomenon of marine snow, which involves planktonic microorganisms. But um, in these last years, I've gotten very interested in sort of doing uh, marine research, which tied into the human community more. And so uh, I'm going to tell you about this work uh, on toxic algae in the coastal zone. And my work is very much as a plankton biologist, but I'm realizing more and more how embedded this, this whole subject is in the history of um, many cultures that are seafaring and seagoing and live along the coasts. And so I'm uh, broadening out and hopefully won't make too many goofs as I re review the literature, uh, which puts, I think, the ho this whole subject in a broader perspective than I was aware of, say, when I started the work five or 10 years ago. So um, I'm going to talk a bit about um, traditional foods um, and shellfish and the phenomenon of red tides. And I um, acknowledge that I have others in my department uh, who are specialists in this area too. And, um, and it's a wonderful community to be working uh, with here in Santa Cruz. Um, I'm going to start in, uh, out um, with this picture, which I got. Uh, these pictures are available on the web. They were um, done as a documentary series around 1900, between the late 1890s and maybe 1920 or so, by uh, Edward Curtis, who took pictures of what he thought might be a vanishing culture around of the uh, Native Americans um, in North America. And this picture is a, a picture he took of uh, several people in the Quileute tribe. And what is so amazing is the Quileute tribe now is one of the major groups uh, collaborating in the study of toxic algae and shellfish poisoning. So I'm going to have several pictures from that collection. But in fact, these are a group which unfortunately, in some ways, may be experimental subjects. And they're being studied uh, by um, uh, medical doctors as people who have been exposed to these toxins for a long time. So um, we're working as scientists with that community. And it's amazing that we have photographs of their great-great-grandparents here in our archives. OK. Um, so the way I'm going to approach this is I'm going to look at um, shellfish, how long we humans have been exposed to them, have been using them as cultures. And so this is a historical perspective, which I'm just beginning to be aware of. Then I'm going to focus on the, um, the uh, toxic uh, microorganisms that occur abundantly in Central California and are more and more in the news especially as uh, a consequence of animal um, deaths and animal illness it's, uh, response that they're responsible for. And the last part of this, I'm talking about the way we are now protecting ourselves uh, against poisoning events and what are the various ways that can be done. And I'm going to talk about traditional ways uh, involving uh, Native Americans and some others that I've become aware of through just serendipitous discoveries. OK, 
So I'm going to start out with, uh, with the um, exposure, the contact between humans and shellfish. I was really quite surprised. There's a, a growing uh, new perspective that we have been harvesting um, shellfish and using them for food for perhaps over a million years ago. And by uh, that, the we, I include other species of Homo. So there was <coughs> Homo um, erectus and Homo habilis, the first uh, hominids uh, in Africa. Uh, there have been middens or shell mounds which have been found in association with uh, other artifacts that lead us to believe that they were the collectors of shellfish. And so uh, if you look back before 100,000 years ago, there are, um, there are middens where uh, tools and other artifacts suggest these various species of humans were collecting along the coastlines of the world species of shellfish, uh, often mussels, but other scallops and other, uh, and other um, uh, mollusks, bivalve mollusks. And on the left side, I, I have one of, a picture of one of the more recent excavations. This one is from Morro Bay, um, and it dates back several thousand years. But all over the California coast, there are these middens, and there's certainly much more ancient ones in Africa. Um, so again, ex we suggest that, in fact, the ancestors of modern ho uh, hominids of, of our species, Homo sapiens sapiens, uh, was a user of shellfish and was exposed uh, to some of possibly the same kinds of issues that I'm going to talk about today. Um, uh, starting with about 100,000 years uh, to 10,000 years, there's a period when we think probably hominids uh, and um, Homo sapiens sapiens, uh, uh, what you would call um, morphologically, anatomically modern uh, humans, were users of shellfish. So this is the 10. 100,000 to 10,000 year part of this story. Uh, unfortunately, the remains of those middens, which we uh, know were produced, we find a few of them on land, are mostly removed. And those of you who know about the changes in ocean sea level would understand why. The last time the sea level was about at this height was about 120,000 years ago. The sea level rose and fell uh, numerous times with the um, ice ages. Um, and as the sea level rose, after, uh, as the sea level retreated to start out, hominids, uh, our ancestors, moved out onto areas that are now submerged. So their, their um, sites where they lived and where they collected are now underwater. As the water levels rose again, the remains of those middens, those shell mounds, and their artifacts were uh, largely washed away. People are starting to do underwater um, archaeology uh, and recovering some of them. But it's realized that there was enough wave disturbance and action that, um, that we've lost a lot of those uh, artifacts from that period. Um, but uh, starting about 10,000 years ago, when uh, the slowing of the sea level rise um, uh, or this, the sea level rise slowed, um, we have increasingly good records of these mounds, what people were eating and the remains. And they, they are found um, in that period all over the, all over the coasts of the world. And uh, we find them in that time period in California here. And we have some nice sites. They tend to be island sites off of um, cent or central and southern California. And on the bottom right here, we have a picture again from the Quileute tribe 
in uh, the Olympic Peninsula, I didn't mention that, it's north uh, uh, in Washington State, of a mussel harvester. This picture was taken about 100 years ago and probably exemplifies a lot of the sort of strategies that people use, aboriginal users of shellfish uh, collected these harvests and then um, um, with minimal processes um, consumed them. Okay, now um, those sort of days of the early use of shellfish, um, we again are using um, archeolo I mean, archeological methods to, uh, in the excavations uh, to look at those, those uses, but we know in fact that over several thousand years, humans, we know something about the culture of people that use shellfish. And perhaps the most striking and in fact uh, eloquent and um, just amazing writings about shellfish is one um, that is in the Jewish tradition and it is in the book of um, Leviticus uh, talking about whether or not we should consume shellfish. And many traditions, or there are some groups, uh, both Christian and others, that still follow these laws. And I think this is just wonderful writing. It shows something of a New Test, Old Testament spirit. And for those that can't read it in the back, I'll read what, it's, uh, what it says about uh, basically the law that is taken uh, in the Hebrew tradition, the Islamic, I mean, of the uh, Jewish tradition for consuming uh, seafoods. Uh, and shellfish in particular. And it reads, These shall ye eat of all that are in the waters, whatsoever hath fins and scales in the water, in the seas and in the rivers, them shall ye eat. All that have not fins and scales in the sea and in the rivers, of all that move in the waters and of all living things which is in the waters, they shall be an abomination to you. Um, whatsoever has no fins nor scales in the water, that shall be an abomination. So the abomination theme is very large in this uh, writing. <laughs> there's, there's no mincing words here. Um, and this is uh, still, I think about, uh, as I've read, maybe half of the people living in Israel still um, uh, today follow these traditions of not consuming shellfish. And the notion was these are scavengers and unclean. It's interesting that um, the Islamic tradition uh, as um, uh, has many features in common in dietary laws, but in fact they are much more benevolently disposed to shellfish. And this is from the Quran, and I um, list the, the source. And um, in that tradition, it, it says, lawful to you is the pursuit of water game and its use for food, for the benefit of yourselves and those who travel. And water game in this translation is understood all uh, marine and aquatic uh, organisms just about. And there were other restrictions. For instance, you couldn't take the blood at, from these organisms. You had to handle them and kill them appropriately. There are other, um, uh, other groups of people in the Islamic tradition who are Muslims who do not eat shellfish. So it depends upon the group and basically the sect where they are in the world, whether or not that's consumed. Uh, there are Christian groups who do not uh, use shellfish, many of them borrowing from the, from the Jewish tradition. And so it is, these are considered basically unclean by many uh, cultures because they are scavengers. They eat dead organisms and they uh, eat what's available. So there are people who have avoided shellfish. And this, uh, there's a picture on the left of a street vendor in Istanbul 
And in fact, uh, some of us who went to Istanbul see the, saw uh, street vendors like this collecting mussels in, um, uh, near uh, the mosques of Sofia and others where the waters were decidedly contaminated and selling them on the street. And uh, there's a fairly high incidence of people getting sick eating mussels from just these very things that had they followed the Islamic rules of consumption would have no problem. Anyhow, uh, now the question is why, uh, what kinds of problems when can one encounter feeding on shellfish in general? What I've done is I've taken some examples here of some of the problems that you might encounter. And these, some of them are quite ancient, but most of them are modern. And so some examples uh, of the, uh, organisms or, or dangers you might encounter in eating shellfish, this is of all varieties. And the top, there are a number of viruses. If you, uh, in fact, if they're taken up by uh, shellfish, um, if you cook the viruses, um, or if you cook the shellfish, you are killing uh, the viruses, or you're disabling or destroying them. These would be hepatitis A, uh, Norwalk, and polioviruses. Polioviruses not being around much these days. But those could be if you ate especially raw oysters, and these were present in the oysters, you could acquire these diseases. Um, if you looked, uh, the next group are, there's a number of bacterial diseases which could be uh, made available to you via a shellfish. There's uh, some that are quite, uh, quite common, like sal salmonella. And in medieval times, this included species of salmonella, uh, salmonella typhi, which causes typhoid fever, and which is a scourge of the Middle Ages. And that was transmitted by fecal coliform being taken up. Uh, so again, they are, you know, the scavenger, take everything out of the water perspective. They are taking this bacteria up. If you, again, cook the uh, mussel um, or the shellfish, you uh, would kill that agent. There's Vibrio species, Vibrio cholera, uh, is included here. And when I went to Africa, which I'm going to tell you about, the year that I went there, there was a cholera outbreak, which was caused by fecal contamination of shellfish and other, um, other agents. So there's a number of bacteria species. Again, uh, some of them very important in Middle Ages and probably in the, uh, wh wherever there's a danger of fecal contamination of waters, which would be when settlements were larger uh, began large in human uh, history, and often when they were enclosed areas like estuaries and bays. Then um, more recently, and in fact it is quite recent in human history, we've been aware of uh, algal toxins. Certainly, as I'm going to show you, people, there was an awareness before that. There were even preventions against algal toxicity, uh, which people used. There were aboriginal peoples around the world. Uh, but our recognition that it was algae in the water that caused the problems um, has come in the last 100, less than 100 years. And I put two of the most important uh, syndromes, which are caused by algae living in the water, the two that I'll talk about, paralytic shellfish poisoning and amnesic shellfish poisoning down, uh, down here, these two. Other dangers in shellfish, which people may be well aware of, is there's a number of pollutants which will be picked up again by f these filter feeding organisms, things like dioxins and PCBs and DDT when it was present. And those by cooking are not affected, they're not destroyed. So that's another reason why there's great care in the developed world about testing 
these organisms because these, these uh, compounds will be picked up. There are uh, parasites in shellfish which also will cause problems, schistosomiasis being one of them, uh, trematode worms or flukes, uh, which can be picked up. And those can be killed by cooking. So there are many agents. And to put the whole issue of shellfish poisoning in perspective, I want to be honest to say what we're looking at is a part of the story. And probably the cultures that originally set up these bands, like the Hebraic traditions, were not responding necessarily to toxic algae, but were some of these other issues, especially fecal coliform, would be a good one to, um, to be worried about. Now I want to tell you about the connection that was first made between toxic algae and shellfish. And it's interesting that the first recognition occurred, the link was made in California. And it was made here in Monterey Bay, uh, San Mateo County, uh, Monterey County, San Mateo County, and San Francisco County. And the event, which uh, if you've heard me talk about before, I've, I think I've mentioned before, but in 1927, there was an event where um, in the summertime, and I include um, a, a snapshot from July 16th in the San Francisco Examiner, uh, an article on this event. But, and the, the title reads over here, Muscles uh, Kill Man, Infant, Make Five Ill. And then just get a feeling of the reporting of the San Francisco Examiner. I think this is, uh, it's very sad, but it shows the writing style of the day. Disregarding scores of warning signs that mussels are out of season and poisonous, Angelo Fritona, 40, of Moss Beach, gathered himself a mess of mussels and ate them. He was taken to Mills Memorial Hospital, where little hope is held out for his recovery, and he died. So there's many uh, people discovered in middle July that there was, they, that was unseasonably warm. People were out on the beaches. They were collecting mussels, cooking them on the beaches, and people started to get sick. Went in after a relatively short time, less than a day, people realized there was some kind of outbreak going on, and signs were posted. People continued to eat, and it didn't matter whether they cooked the mussels or not, they were poisoned. And this started the investigation, and some of it reads like a mystery story to find the agent. The first um, suspects were contaminants. They thought they were fecal contaminants, microorganisms in sewage. And then they thought, I think, that there may have been some other toxic agents. So it, uh, at the time, no one knew about microorganisms in the water uh, that were natural to the system that might cause these problems. But the cause was taken up by health people uh, uh, essentially a doctor at what is now um, UC San Francisco and a microbiologist at Berkeley and others. And they developed, uh, amazingly, a technique for studying toxins in mussels that is still to used today and is basically still the international standard for mussel uh, collecting. It looks pretty primitive, and I hope no one is offended by this, but I'm going to tell you what really happens here. Okay. <laughs> What you do is you take mussels that you think uh, may be contaminated. And this is now done by the state on a regular basis, part of the way we test it. And you take the mussel tissues, you grind it up, and you uh, dissolve the toxins out in an alcohol or um, in, a, in a solvent. You then take that extraction, you filter the particles out, you take what remains in the liquid phase, 
and you inject it into a mice, a mouse. And today we have mice specially bred for this taxing, uh, this kind of toxin testing, and these are called mouse bioassays. And there's a great deal of effort to try to replace this system. But then you determine if the mice, mouse gets sick and how quickly it dies and how much you inject into the mouse before you can tell how toxic the water is. This method was developed in the 1920s and early 30s. And through this study, people were able to make the connection of what it is in the muscles that was killing people. So on the top line is the measure of the number of mouse units, which is how quickly the mouse died. Um, and so this is uh, the time span is 1931 up to 1934. And this is uh, what w the muscles that were collected on the beaches of San Francisco. This extraction was done. And this is how poisonous the water was. So on the left, you can see there was a very dangerous time in 1931. Again, here in 1933, it was very dangerous. Then people took uh, a look at what was in the water uh, to see if they can make the connection. Did the changes in toxicity reflect what was going on in the water? And early on, they got a sense it might be a microorganism, which is a swimming alga, that is a photosynthetic organism that might be linked. So um, these organisms are called dinoflagellates, and I'll show you pictures of them. But here's the abundance that was measured in this time period of those general group of microorganisms to link and see how it correlated with the mouse bioassay results. The lower line shows what they thought was the prime suspect of the time which is a species that we now call Alexandrium catenella. And in fact, this linkage with this was pretty good. And on the basis of this, in 1937, a paper was published that said, we know what it is that's killing the organism. They also did some incredible um, studies in which they uh, took this um, alga here, concentrated it in the water, uh, collected that material and then injected the extraction into, into mice and the mice died. So they had the, f uh, against uh, basically the, uh, the proof that it was related to this. So that was a link. And this was the first time a waterborne uh, alga was found to uh, produce these kinds and be responsible for such a, a poisoning syndrome. Uh, the organism that they um, attributed this to, the one, and the one that we know today is one of the main sources of this toxin, we know about other sources now, is this organism shown on the right. The cells individually are about 50 microns, which means you line 20 of them up and they would be a millimeter long. And they make colonies here, which in fact is important because it makes them more available to organisms that can't capture small food. Um, and <clears throat> on uh, the bottom here, I show what the structure of the molecule is that produces the toxin. And this is one of the most toxic known substances. Uh, uh, it has a toxin comparable to that of ricin, which you may have heard about in the news in the last week, which is considered uh, a biologically controlled agent. agent. And it is, there's great uh, restriction on its use because it's a, it's a weapons. Um, it uh, can be used uh, for uh, contaminating water supplies technically, though we can't synthesize enough that it really is of any danger to us. So it's considered a very dangerous uh, agent, and there's some very interesting stories about this. 
In fact, uh, pilots flying U-2 missions over Russia uh, were given uh, containers, tiny little pellets of this extracted from the algae. They're shot down. They were supposed to eat this and die instantly so that they wouldn't be interrogated and give secrets. So in fact, uh, in very limited quantities, it can be made available, but there's no large-scale source of it. Um, it is tasteless, odorless, and water-soluble. And the synthesis of this molecule was pretty recent, about 1980, when in the laboratory people were able to make this. In some cases, not around here, it forms red water. And that's shown on the left. That's a picture from Hong Kong Harbor, which had gross of very high abundance of this in the water. They discolored the water red. And in fact, they cause luminescence, bioluminescence, or light production in the water at nighttime. So they're a very interesting organism. And, and two milligrams will kill a human being. So it's pretty, pretty impressive. Um, now, what happens when you <coughs> were to eat a muscle that has saxitoxin in here? And I always tell people when I talk, if you have this first symptom, uh, you really want to get to a doctor quickly. Um, and the first symptom is tingling and numbness of fingers, lips, face, and extremities. So if you feel like people are, po are poking you with pins, extreme, and that your lips are going numb, um, then that's a problem. Um, <laughs> get to the doctor. Okay. There are other symptoms, uh, uh, gastrointestinal tract, uh, you know, vomiting, diarrhea, the, the usual. Um, blurred vision, shortness of breath, dry mouth, slurred speech, headache, uh, floating. If you start to float, you're in trouble. And, <laughs> and uh, death from respiratory paralysis. Basically, your uh, muscles don't, uh, you, uh, you won't provide your lungs with oxygen. So th there's no known antidote to this. What you do is you go to a hospital and they put you on an IV or some kind of breathing machine, and that's how you survive this. Uh, I have friends who have had this, by the way, so it's not impossible to think about. Okay, to put it in perspective, this is a very scary toxin, but there have not been many events at all. So um, it is of great historical interest, and it's why we have monitoring in the California coast. But if you look realistically how many cases have there been, in the last uh, 50 years, uh, or 60 years, not many. And <clears throat> what this does is it shows the counties in California where we've had the longest monitoring program of any place in the world, I think, uh, since 1927 when we started this bioassay monitoring uh, using mice. And you're going from north, <coughs> no, it's not north, it's uh, Del Norte, Humboldt, Mendocino. Um, yeah, no, these are north to south. And you can see uh, how many cases have been reported uh, for, of human poisoning in the middle zone and how many people have died. So over this interval, only 32 people have died. And I, that's really a success story because uh, if you do the monitoring using the mice, we know there are lethal situations just about every year somewhere along the coast. And that is a likely underestimate because there are people who will not go to a doctor who can't afford it who are probably being poisoned. Um, OK, so that's the story of the first connection that was made uh, with, um, with toxic algae. And the, the one I'm going to spend most of the rest of the time on is domoic acid, which has been affecting marine organisms here. Uh, we became, we set up a monitoring system in the 20s and 30s 
But in 1991, an event happened that couldn't be put in, in any perspective um, uh, of a known uh, toxin uh, of alexandrium or other algae which became recognized as sources of toxins. And this happened when brown pelicans and cormorants were washing ashore and exhibiting very odd behavior. Uh, and these forage on uh, schooling fish, anchovy in particular, and on the upper left panel is shown uh, brown pelicans diving, capturing a fish in the gooler pouch, and feeding on schools which they can see from the air. Uh, actually, anchovy schools discolor the water uh, uh, dark, shadowy colors. When you look, we looked in the stomachs of the uh, anchovies, we found a benevolent alga that was here. We've known this alga is common in Monterey Bay since the 50s. It has a name, um, it was called Nietzsche at the time, and there was no reason to think there was any sort of problem. However, we then, uh, through a series of events, I'll, and I'll tell you them briefly, uh, discovered, in fact, um, it had a, um, a toxin, which, in fact, had been known for a very long time. In uh, Japan, uh, seaweed, a red alga called um, achondria, was known to uh, be able to kill insects. In fact, on the beaches where it washed up in Japan, flies that settle died. And this is rather strange, but um, people took uh, concoctions of the seaweed, small amounts, and they gave them to their children to worm their children. So that's the anti-helminth which was used at low doses, commonly used. And what it did was, was great children who had uh, internal parasites were, um, the per, uh, parasites were removed on exposure to the proper dose of seaweed. Um, so it was recognized in, uh, as the source of the toxin was um, uh, a molecule that I'm going to show you. It's an amino acid, and it was named demolic acid. And its synthesis was, uh, was made by chemists in 1982, about the same time the synthesis of saxitoxin, the agent of paralytic shellfish poisoning. And <clears throat> so here we had uh, an a, um, a local alga, surprisingly, that seemed uh, to show signs of the same toxin. Uh, in fact, the way we discovered this toxin in phytoplankton uh, first was on the uh, Canadian East Coast, and on the left, shows mussels being drawn up from lines, and on the right, an underwater view of the mussel farms. And in uh, 1987, mussels, premier mussels from this farm, uh, Prince Ed Edward Island mussels, uh, made about 100 people sick. So this was a human Ill illness, and they exhibited a series of symptoms, which I'll show you. And people rushed to find out what the source of the problem was. And uh, the people exhibited symptoms which led uh, to memory loss uh, for some of the ones that had severe cases but survived. And the syndrome was called amnesic shellfish poisoning because of its effect on humans. So this toxin was discovered as something that was the same as in the seaweeds, but here it was an agent killing people. And from that episode in 87, people recognized the symptoms of um, this amnesic shellfish poisoning to be, again, gastrointestinal, uh, nausea, diarrhea, so on, uh, terrible headache, as in the other case, hallucinations, seizures, and memory loss, and then death. So memory loss, um, and the memory loss was due to damage in the hippocampus, memory centers. And this was a neurological toxin that affects 
uh, neurons with particular kinds of receptors, uh, glutamate, particular glutamate receptors in the brain. Uh, the uh, problem was that as we began to study this, we realized there were lots of different species which had been confused. Uh, and these chain-forming diatoms, these little algae, and they're shown up on the right, uh, again, a, a picture of a, a colony of them. And these can get up to a millimeter long, though the individual cells might be closer to uh, a tenth of a millimeter. So they're accessible to many organisms. And now to know which species we have, we have to use a tool like electron microscopy, or we have some molecular tools to tell the species apart. And this is uh, the molecule that's involved. It's in a naturally occurring amino acid. Okay, we know uh, from that event in California that, in fact, and, and the event in California, by the way, was the first time that a major region has discovered a toxin because of not human poisoning, but animal poisoning. And we know the vector, the organism that was carrying the toxin was an anchovy in the case of 1991. The anchovy was a prime uh, uh, source of the toxin because it has gill rakers or structures that are allow it to take out microorganisms of the right or wrong size in this case, up to a millimeter or so, so it can concentrate that in the stomach. If you find domoic acid in a anchovy, it's almost certainly in the digestive tract. When it clears the tract, it's almost entirely gone. So it's, it's held in the, or it's in the stomach, not in the tissue. The predator acquires the food, like the shark shown there, from eating the anchovy that still has those cells in its stomach. It's not that that material is gone, but if you looked in the stomach of that shark, which was eating that anchovy, which was eating these diatoms, you'd find in the stomach of the shark those tiny cells, as we'll show here. So anchovies are very important predators for many apex predators in Monterey Bay and elsewhere. They're schooling, they're easy to spot, they're incredibly abundant, and they're forage fish for many organisms. Since then, work in my lab and uh, in this area has shown a lot of other organisms which are picking up the toxins uh, either from, from fish or from some other source, and I can talk about that. But you have on the left cormorants. In the middle, uh, we, um, people in my group, including uh, Dr. Sibel Bargu here, Kathy LaFay, and others, found that in the feces of humpback whales, we find uh, um, domoic acid, and we find the tiny skeletons of these algae. Uh, these uh, mole crabs, which are all over the beaches, pick those up. Sea lions, which I'll talk a little bit more about, uh, show the toxins, and crabs have toxins in them. Uh, this is a uh, species of cancer crab, and then a variety of fish uh, like these uh, white croaker. So they're, uh, in most cases, uh, again, in the gut, but the question is, does enough leak in to cause a problem to the, uh, into the body of these organisms? One of the most interesting cases, I think, was one that Dr. Bargu worked on here, part of her doctoral thesis. She looked in the feces of blue whales, blue whales being the largest marine mammal on Earth, and in there found the broken fragments of Pseudonychia, the species Australis, which cause, uh, has domoic acid. She also did measurements on the feces and found domoic acids uh, in levels of two, about 200 uh, parts per million here. Uh, 50 parts per million is considered very dangerous. And from uh, the blue whale diet is known it feeds on krill. And uh, she since then documented a number of times krill contained domoic acid. 
They're fed upon like anchovies by lots of organisms. Um, th perhaps the most dramatic case, and this has already started, I think 24 animals have come ashore in Southern California already this year, 2006. These are sea lions. Sea lions are serving as the sentinels of the presence of this organism uh, in the water. And this shows some of the rescue techniques. Um, the whole rescue operations are mostly coordinated around here by, uh, in Tiburon by the Marine Mammal Center. And when r animals are reported on the beaches to be behaving uh, in a peculiar way, seizuring, head weaving, lethargic, not being responsive, and with this funny like arching behavior, uh, the uh, animal rescue people are called. Uh, they uh, uh, take the animals, restrain them, and sometimes you'll see up and down uh, pickup trucks with these very large containers moving up. They bring them to rehabilitation centers and they rehabilitate uh, the animals. It, originally, they weren't able to rehabilitate as many as they can now, but they use agents to stop the convulsions, which seems to be a really key issue, and to rehydrate the animals. Um, in, the, in fact, the connection between mammal deaths uh, and uh, this toxin was discovered uh, for these large marine mammals in 1998 um, events where uh, we made, actually it's not we in this case, it was Dr. Sholin and his group at Mabari, uh, took measurements of the, uh, on the abundance of cells, of the toxic cells, and correlated with the number of strandings. And this was a beautiful correlation as far as these correlations in the wild go. And it made it very clear that as the numbers of cells of these toxic algae rose, so did the strandings. And thank heavens the data were published then because later results are a lot more confusing. So it's great to have not too much data. Uh, <laughs> okay. So this is now data, a longer data series. We have to update it, but it goes up to the year 2003. On the top are marine animal strandings, the numbers. And the top of that bar is 18. Numbers of animals stranding um, between the, uh, 1999 and 2003 along the coast of the Monterey Bay. And um, you can see the numbers of strandings where the behavior s indicates it's stomach acid related. This middle panel is the number of cells per liter of these toxin producers, and this is the toxin. And so you can see there are times when the animals are stranding here, showing evidence of domoic acid poisoning, and yet we, we're not seeing domoic acid or those cells in the water, which still remains an, um, a mystery. This is a long time series data, and I'm only going to make, uh, our, this is a time series data uh, we've generated with colleagues at Scripps and Santa Barbara, looking at different points along the coast and looking at the numbers of these toxic cells. And the numbers here, this is a thousand and this is a million. So it's a log scale. Anyhow, what you can see uh, where there's blanks, it means we have no data here. This is Santa Barbara, so the study was only done in this interval. But you can see there's not a huge difference in the abundance of these toxic cells up and down the coast. In our longest time series, there's no particular pattern. A year ago, I would have said there was a pattern. We got more data and the pattern disappeared. Uh, as often happens. So the, the take-home message is these are up and down the California coast. They often show themselves in one part of the coast earlier than the other in any given year, but uh, they're all over the coast. This is a diagram showing the numbers of cells in the water. This is wild populations and the amount of toxin in the water. 
Um, and these are measured by standard chemical methods, no mice involved in this. And there are two sites. This one down here is the Santa Cruz Wharf, and the upper one is a station over the submarine canyon. And basically what this says is that the cells are more toxic offshore than they are inshore. And we've known that for a while. Why, why that uh, is, is so is a very interesting question, but it looks like the levels, if you have a high number of cells, the same number uh, is likely to be more toxic offshore in the foraging range of some of these mammals, actually. Okay, and then this is just to show you, um, this is um, the uh, organism, the diatom responsible for amnesic shellfish poisoning uh, between 99 and uh, right now. And this is for the organism responsible for paralytic shellfish poisoning on a different scale, uh, but in Monterey Bay over the same time period. So these both are present in Monterey Bay. The red, uh, the red bar is about the place where we start to get really worried uh, in terms of these might be causing problems, either shellfish poisoning of humans if we were to consume them or animal deaths. Now, uh, one of the very cool things is that we have a lot of interesting research going on in Monterey Bay. And one of the, the uh, research partners here is uh, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, Mabari. And uh, Chris Sholin, Dr. Chris Sholin down there, is one of a team of engineers and scientists developing systems, sensor systems, which will be put out on moorings where chips will be uh, deployed uh, uh, in combination with vacuum systems to draw in water at intervals which he programs in. And the animals, I mean, sorry, the microorganisms in the water will be drawn into these pumps and uh, various kinds of assays applied to them, in this case molecular probes that detect the species of interest. He is developing these for the toxic algae in Monterey Bay. So someday, probably in a year or two, you can possibly almost call up the mooring and ask, are there toxic algae in Monterey Bay? In numbers to worry about. So this will be the first development, I think, of anything like that around the world that holds enormous promise. This is a, a solar-powered panel. And this is the, the uh, instrument inside showing the pump and, the, and so on. So the point is, in Monterey Bay here, we'll be developing a mechanism for uh, monitoring, which is uh, um, extremely promising. Now, the question, I want to go into the last section, which is how do we protect ourselves? In the modern world here, uh, since the 1920s and 30s, we've set up a number of tech ways of protecting ourselves against shellfish poisoning. There, and this is government regulated because obviously it involves um, uh, human uh, safety. And most of the government regulation is for commercially uh, collected um, shellfish. And it, more and more, it's starting to look at other organisms. But the way this is done is uh, often there's just seizure, uh, the seasonal closures, as happened since the 1920s with um, paralytic shellfish poisoning. So in the, sh the late spring, summer, and early fall, you cannot harvest shellfish from the beach. If you are a grower and growing shellfish, you test the shellfish has to be tested. And if it's clean and good, it will be sold. So it can be sold during that interval. So the government agencies will, if uh, a problem shows up at other times, they'll post warnings where people are getting the fish at, on piers and at um, access routes to, to haul your boats in and out. 
Um, and there are, in a few places, uh, water monitoring for algae. It's very rare. We have that in California, actually. Locally, you can find information for medical doctors and newspaper accounts and so on. Uh, now, I'm going to say a little bit about uh, a discovery I made, which uh, was, to me, quite amazing. And also, in retrospect, I was embarrassed I had to discover it um, because it's so obvious. Um, what I did, um, the last sabbatical I took, I went to East Africa. Uh, and I studied um, in Zanzibar, where, uh, which are islands of Tanzania. And I was very interested in the likely presence of a toxic alga, which had never been reported in the scientific literature there. And it was Ciguatera. It's a dinoflagellate uh, uh, related to that first organism I talked about. But uh, it grows on seaweeds. Uh, seaweeds are eaten by fish, and the fish then um, will retain the toxin, which is called ciguatera poisoning. All over the tropics, this is a very important health issue. It had never been reported in uh, this area, which had coral reefs. And I was very interested in whether the alga was present, this toxic alga, and why, uh, you know, what was going on, why it had not been reported. Um, there, uh, when I talked to medical people, um, in Tanzania, where I was, they said, uh, we've never heard of ciguatera poisoning. It's not around here. Um, I then, I was at the um, University of Dar es Salaam uh, station uh, in Zanzibar Island. And a colleague who was a fisheries biologist said, Mary, uh, why don't you come with me to, uh, I'm going to talk to some fishermen. And maybe they'll know about ciguatera poisoning, because it's a fish poison. So I went um, to uh, some of his meetings and discovered there was something interesting to discover. Um, and so I set out, with the help of some cultural anthropologists, to try to find out what the fishing people of uh, Zanzibar knew about these toxins. And uh, what I did is I went around to a variety of villages, mostly in areas not at all near the big towns, but uh, in remote areas. And I had a tr translator, because my Swahili is not good. Uh, <laughs> and here's my translator. Um, Mr. Suleiman, who was very helpful. And uh, I, he would introduce me. We would, as the people came back from the fishing population, which was on boats, it's all male, they would come in in the morning after a fishing uh, event. And they would bring uh, their fish uh, in. And fishmongers would come, take the fish, take them away. And then he would persuade them to sit down and talk with me. So we conducted interviews. And I asked the fishing people, did you ever encounter problems uh, with uh, um, illness when you ate certain kinds of fish? And the answer was mostly no. Or the answer was not in not my fish, but fish down the way, <laughs> 20 miles south of here. <laughs> so then uh, I accumulated a list of what was in other villages. And I started to ask people about them. And there was a whole sequence that was mind-boggling to me. I would ask, do you have a problem eating um, grouper? And we would show pictures. I, I came to know the Swahili names of these. Uh, do you have problems eating grouper? And people would say, no, there's no problem eating grouper. And um, then I would say, is there a problem eating the liver of grouper? People love liver. Uh, and they, it's a very rich source. Uh, of uh, calories. It's highly prized in this area. And they would look at me as I was daft, and they'd say, no problem with liver. And then I would say, well, did you eat the liver? 
And they say, would say, no. And I'd say, why not? They'd say, well, you, got, you get sick, vomiting, diarrhea. And uh, <laughs> so there's no problem. Um, <laughs> and so, so uh, it became very clear. The other way you avoid a problem is you no longer consider that item food. Even though you eat liver in every other fish that you collect, you don't eat it in all the, the suspect uh, organisms. So that's another way that I have not seen discussed very much. I talked to some anthropologists, and they thought, I, you know, why didn't I understand that? Uh, but anyhow, I didn't. And I think many people don't. Uh, if I were to ask people, do you eat rhubarb, many of you would say yes. But if I told you it's terribly toxic, you wouldn't be aware of that. because you don't eat the, the leaves. Uh, the, the stems are quite toxic. So you eat the part of the plant that's edible. Now, uh, to bring this in perspective, I mentioned, uh, to come back uh, to the end, I mentioned that there are ways of protecting yourself. Um, if you at were to talk to the Quileute tribe, and uh, tribes uh, through uh, Oregon and Northern California, uh, they would have mechanisms for avoiding um, to um, uh, uh, toxins in shellfish. When bioluminescence appeared in the water, and this is a picture from a newspaper in Santa Barbara taken, um, it's a, um, a, a picture that took many seconds to take, but you'll see light emerging from the water. Apparently there were sentinels on the cliffs along the uh, northwest Pacific coast, people looking for the light. When the light appeared in the water, you didn't eat the shellfish. And uh, areas around here, San Francisco, when uh, the berries were ripe on this particular elderberry, you didn't eat the shellfish. So that was their monitoring system. When, this, uh, when these events happen, you do not eat them. And if you do, um, you could get very sick or die. There are other, um, our modern bioassay organism is a mouse. I discovered in many parts of the world, this isn't a bioassay, uh, which is stray cats. Not your cat, but somebody else's. Uh, <laughs> so so um, this is used around the world, and especially cultures which are poor, where there are a lot of stray animals, and the animals are hungry. So what you do is the cook may say, here, kitty, kitty, and uh, give a tiny bit of um, the organ, uh, whatever the suspect item is. And if the, if the cat's OK in an hour or two, it's fine to eat. So um, that's our, our bioassay. So you can choose which kind. We use the one on the top right. But um, there's other ways to go. And uh, what I'll say is that there are websites, should you want to look at them, uh, these toxic algae in the US and in the Western world in the, um, are pretty well monitored. And there are websites for the CDC and California, which will put postings of levels of these toxins. So the conclusion of this is, as far as we can tell, humans have long used shellfish. And um, probably over time, the danger changed as humans uh, came to live in settlements where fecal contamination was a large thing. Perhaps that was the origin of some of the traditions that we see that go back thousands of years. Um, but uh, in areas like our coast, where the waters pretty much are swept clean by currents, there's a much more limited uh, danger, except during these particular kinds of blooms. Um, the second point at the, of conclusion is um, that the, these, we're seeing that these algae affect not only humans, 
But I told you about the connections that relate even to whales and sea lions here in Monterey Bay. Uh, we know that al algae can uh, intoxicate or kill uh, from other of the syndromes, like paralytic shellfish poisoning or microorganisms are known to have killed whales and fish. So what we are is we're part of a food web. The toxin is shared in the food web. And the last point is that the monitoring and protection of humans has involved in the past cultural practices and now modern technology, which may use pumping systems, molecular probes, PCR, and so on. But this we're following an ancient tradition of shellfish consumption. So that's, that's the end. I'm very happy if there's any questions to answer, uh, questions about, about any of this. Yes? I eat shellfish. I love them. And if, if yesterday I had sardines uh, for lunch. The thing is that uh, I do get nervous when my son has ceviche. Uh, that is really scary to me. Uh, actually, a sit that which is raw shellfish, uh, if you put lots and lots of lemon juice, the pH, the acidity, will kill some of these organisms. But if you're eating from areas where, if you're eating from a responsible growers, uh, not like the vendor in the streets of Istanbul, uh, you're probably okay. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Pardon? Do I have a guess? <laughs> guess what happened to it? No, I don't. <laughs> No, but I heard that. In fact, some of, I had a student from Puerto Rico, and he told me everyone in his everyone he knew had uh, ciguatera poisoning. I said, "How do you avoid it?" He said, "Cats." Okay, yeah, Ken. Is there? Uh, is there a? Um, uh, so that was a great question. Ken asked about whether there's evidence these toxins were around, I mean, were poisoning people a um, long time ago. We don't really know. Part of the problem is we can't go back in time for many of these microalgae. We know is if you go to Saanich Inlet, which you know well, and some of the other anaerobic environments along the coast, we have barbed records, and you can show that there are periods when there was a lot more Alexandrium around in the past. Now, whether you could actually go in and see if they're toxin-producing strains, that would be the key issue. Uh, I've talked with Paul Koch and some others, maybe even you here. I would love to go back in the mussel middens that we have on the coast and see if there's any evidence, trace uh, evidence, of saxitoxin in the uh, organic matter in mussel tissue. So if there's any great chemist who can do incredibly fine analysis uh, on you know, mini, 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 mini micromolar, nanomolar, uh, whatever, then that would be a very hot thing to do. So I think middens offer possibilities. But whether we have the analytical ability to measure it in parts per trillion is a, is a question. Yes? Okay, that's a really important thing. First, the toxin in the shellfish that you eat, it hasn't killed them because you wouldn't be eating a dead shellfish. However, now and then there are reports of dead shellfish gaping. The question is, have those been hit? So uh, again, 
people don't, uh, there's a tradition, again, going way back, you don't eat dead animals, and I think that's why, because they died of what might kill you if you ate them. <laughs> okay, so, so um, okay, so why do they, uh, they make them? If you were to talk to people, they would have different explanations. In many cases, the one that, as a biologist, that's particularly satisfying is you take the organism that normally consumes them and see if, it, uh, if they'll stop uh, eating organisms with toxins. That, that has been shown for paralytic shellfish poisoning. Sea otters, on exposure to shellfish uh, that have paralytic shellfish poisoning in them, stop eating those shellfish. They will move away from areas. And Rick Kavitek here at Monterey did lovely work on that. Uh, there are people, uh, some of the people who s were poisoned but survived um, uh, with paralytic shellfish poisoning say they had a funny metallic taste. But uh, again, whether those, whether they're confused, uh, no human's going to do that test. But it, the, one of the reasons is it may protect them uh, against uh, a grazer which can uh, learn to recognize the toxin and avoid it. So it would be highly beneficial. The other thing is there are people who would say the agent like domoic acid has other functions, which may uh, be like it is a chelator, a chemical chelator, which allows access to certain mineral nutrients or ties them up if they're in excess. So chemists would have an answer. And probably the truth is some mixture of all of those things. Yeah. Yes? Yes, that's a very good point. You know, if you'd asked me that a year ago, I'd tell you, boy, there is a climate connection. The data looks so good. Um, but uh, now that we're looking at it, um, as people may know, we're going through changes. I mean, one thing is we're clearly um, producing CO2, which is going to ultimately result in warming, or it is resulting in warming. But we're also undergoing these multi-decadal changes and El Nino, La Nino events, those do change the abundance of these organisms. The northerly ones with those uh, saxitoxin producers being more cold water, the ones that I'm looking at mostly in this state being more warm water, you would think as we go into a cold and warm phase, the abundance of these would change. However, it's looking like it's a bit more complicated, and the darndest thing is that these organisms, which are warm-loving, uh, are up in, um, can, uh, in um, Washington, and they're producing toxins up there. Whether it's the same organism, it's the same technically, but whether it's the same strain, we don't know. So it's more confusing than we would have ever thought when we, were, we had less data. Okay. Yes? Um, I think actually we'll just go ahead and, 